What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are on episode 68 of the show. Last week, I was speaking with Robert Colleran about the Irish property market. This week, I am crossing the Irish Sea over to England to speak with my guest, and it's Harvey of Harvey Growth Properties. I came across Harvey earlier in the year via Clubhouse, and... uh, I have since gone on to appear on his own podcast a few months back. Now, Harvey has a really interesting story to tell around property investing because he does so remotely. And that is that he found the price of property in the area that he lived to be way too expensive and simply not a good um, investment return for what he was looking for. So instead, he has found what he refers to as his gold mine location, way up uh, in the northeast of England, many, many hours drive away from where he lives. And up there, he's managed to find prices where he can buy he can buy five properties for the price of one in the area that he currently lives. I think anyone starting out in the property sector will find this discussion very interesting, especially how he raised his initial investment capital, which he says himself, he doesn't necessarily recommend somebody go and try. Anyway, I'm going to let Harvey do the talking. Without further ado, I bring you Harvey Growth Properties. Harvey from Harvey Growth Properties, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic, thank you, Gavin. And yourself? I'm in great form, uh, Harvey. We just came out of a, a long weekend uh, here in Ireland. It was a bank holiday Monday, so back in the office today and uh, looking forward to our conversation. Um, so, uh, Harvey, we've got, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the format of mine, but I always ask my guests to kind of like give us a little bit of a context. I know you as Harvey Go Properties and you've, you're into remote property and all this, but like give us the, your, your own elevator pitch, you know, as in what do you do? So uh, my little elevator thing is, uh, I, I, I let's try and reduce this as much as I can because I can rabbit it on. And apologies in advance for that to all your viewers and all your listeners. But yeah, I, basically my why and my mission statement in life is to live on my terms, and I use property to be able to do that. So I'm a remote property investor. That means I live in the south uh, east, but I invest in the northeast of England. Predominantly, just chase the yields. Uh, I don't chase the yields all over the UK. I don't. I don't like scattergun and go to multiple locations. I've got a gold mine location, which is in Stockton on Tees, in Teesside, which is one location. So yeah, I'm just, I also help uh, people portfolio build. There's plenty of people in and around London where I live that can't afford just to, to, to get started with property basically. And, uh, and also help coaching people on that journey. So my mission also is to help as many people live on their own terms via a property, whether that will be, through me uh, coaching them or whether that be through me portfolio building them or just giving them some feedback and guidance off of my experiences. I really feel property has got to be one of the best asset class, if not the best asset class out there. There's multiple asset classes and probably want to diversify, but yeah, I feel it's, it's definitely a strong asset class and I feel everybody should be really getting a financial education and getting some assets. You have to be in it to win it. Isn't that Absolutely. It? Um, oh, well, I mean, in terms of that, I mean, I love that term gold mine location. We'll go into that at some point. But I, before we do, just in terms of a little bit of a backstory to yourself, uh, I mean, take us back to, 
you know, young Harvey, I mean, how did you get into the property business in the first instance? So young Harvey. So uh, let's think of how, what I always was, I, I don't know the seeding point. I, I can't pin it down to one seeding point. But I remember from a young age, I always looked, I always looked at the, it was back in the day, the Gazette before the internet, I used to get the Gazette, get the middle pages out and always look at property and had this desire of property. We grew up it's kind of like on a council estate, not much money, single mum, my dad wasn't around. So uh, in a little village called Averley, just out on the outskirts, we moved out of London. And from the age of six, I grew up in a little village called Averley. I was the only black face apart from one other black face in there in the eighties as well. So that was quite an interesting time. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, from the young age, always had an entrepreneurial spark. We didn't have any money, so I had to really try and go out and work out sort of how can I make my way? I've got hunger for something and how can I work my way? So from doing sort of uh, uh, like little events, like running parties from young, from burger bars, to stumbled into different things, got me stumbled into a little bit of trouble. I'm very transparent about that. It's all around weed. It was nothing it was nothing sort of uh, major. I wasn't a major gangster or anything or heroin dealer or a, a pimp. Although one of the flats I bought at the start of my journey, I probably could have been if I, if I chose to be, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> just for the position it was in, but, but yeah, just really was interested in property. Don't know where it's seeded, but really got interested in property. I bought my first property in, uh, I bought the first thing I've done is bought a piece of land. So I've always been quite hungry. I've always quite ambitious and quite brave. And I'm very much, let's start it now and think about it afterwards. Although that's toning down a little bit as I'm getting older, but I very much started now think about it afterwards. And I bought my first piece of land and I didn't even know what a yield was. I didn't know what, I didn't know anything about how you would lend it, how you'd finance it, structure it. But I was just like, okay, yeah, let's buy this piece of land and let's, let's develop it into two, two properties. Uh, why above my level of skill at the time? Why above my level of uh, courage as well? I really Once I got it, I, I actually procrastinated and was scared. Like I was like, oh, okay. And I was really, when I analyzed it now, I was just putting it off because it was such a daunting task. But I got that piece of land, got me started. Uh, and then I went and got a buy to let in South End. So as I said, I was born in London, but from the age of six, grew up in a little village called Averley. It's the next stop up from London. It's, it's, it's on the inside of the M25 still, but it's a little village. And without any education, without just my instincts at the time, I knew that Averley didn't work as an investment location. It was a village. It didn't have no like transports or none of the fundamentals behind investing. So I went to South End on Sea, and which was within an hour away, and ultimately bought a, a three-bedroom flat which I soon realised, uh, soon realised it was, the agent told me, yeah, great, buy to let, blah, blah, blah. But I realised it wasn't a great sort of location. And at the same time, I realised it wasn't a great, well, I realised it was a great location, but this was the thing that made me really break the sort of, uh, what is it, sort of the mindset and that myth of only invest locally. Because I remember I bought that flat, I bought a few other properties afterwards, and then I bought a few in Teesside, Stockton on Tees. And I met a guy from there. He'd moved down. He met a girl that I knew. We was playing golf together. He, he had over 70 properties in the area. So he's got several businesses. So we got really friendly and he showed me the area, guided me around the area. And as a result, uh, I started investing there. But then I went to my first ever seminar in twenty end of 2013. And every single coach was saying, only invest locally. So I thought, okay, I must, I'm humble. I must have got this wrong. I shouldn't be investing remotely. Although I've done several deals in the area and they all worked really well. 
So I thought, okay, let's do it locally. Got shiny penny syndrome because it's all talking about HMOs and joint venture money. So I raised some joint venture money, done the HMO locally. But it was quite a lot of money and kind of was thinking, how do I rate, keep on continuously raising that? But also, as soon as I'd done the HMO, I realised it was planning and uh, licences and then dealing with multiple tenants moaning about socks on the radiator or or somebody's cooking fish and they don't wash up behind themselves. And I soon realised, although, yeah, it's kind of nice cash flow, but there's a lot to it. There's a lot more to it than like these single debt properties that I was buying was quite simplistic. And it just suited me, you know. I know Operationally, it, HMO is pretty hard going, all right, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I have this conversation with people all the time. I say you can systemise it, but the more things you have to system – the more operations there is around that, the more systems you need, the more management you need. And the bigger the property needs to be for it to be able to fund itself as well. Absolutely. So I soon realized that, you know what, uh, I don't want to be doing this local and I don't want tons of HMOs. I've done training with Mark Home and the HMO daddy. So I had the correct education for it. But I realized I don't want tons of these. I've, I've, I'm buying HMO at the moment. I'd still have HMOs. I just wouldn't want a portfolio full of them. Yeah. Uh, so I realized, you know what? At the same time, that flat in South End, the first tenant was just moved, just moved out, which was my friend, luckily. And the second tenant had moved in and she phoned up and went, Oh, there's prostitutes walking past my past my past flat, and uh, it what it turned out that flat, and I found this out when my friend moved in. It was right in the middle of a red light district, and it was literally four doors up from a drug rehabilitation centre. And this red light district wasn't like it wasn't like a sort of Amsterdam, white core and trendy and bars and that. It was like heroin addicts, crack addicts walking the street at night for their fix, and in the morning to top it off, as I said, queuing up four doors up from my property for, for the methadone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you picked a great location there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But again, this is what broke that myth. I didn't know South End one hour away any yeah. better than I knew. Stockton on Tees four hours away, and yeah. the strategic advantage of investing in the streets that I knew was zero because. It just wasn't an investment area. And also zero because it was too much money. Like, it just didn't work. And I didn't have the money for them sorts of properties. So as I well, said, like, we'll, 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 we'll get into how you select your location to find your gold mine in a second. But just taking it back a step, like that first property that you bought, how did you kind of pull together the, the deposit that you needed for that? Because that's the question I get from a lot of people that are kind of talking about starting their property journey is how do you do your first deal like i mean is it does it mean saving up a load of money or did you do one of those no money down kind of transactions or how did you get started in that regard yeah so my first deals uh was banks money larger a little bit of lending from myself of, of my own and i remember stumbling across a guy talking about opm as i said i bought this piece of land and i didn't know anything really about finance and he's talking about other people's money and bank financing using credit cards and I'm a little disclaimer before I say this, because I know you're not allowed to do it, but I was happy to step in the grey zone. And in business, every now and again, you step in the grey zone. And my way of working out whether I should be in that grey zone or not is, it, is like, am I doing anything ethically wrong? Can I put my head on the pillow at night? And if I can, I'm happy to kind of drift in there. But I'm not advising anybody do that, like, so this, this disclaimer. But I remember I was reading about other people's money, blah, 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 and the banks phoned me. And I was literally just out of money sort of thing. And the banks phoned me and said, hi, we've got a £25,000 loan for you. Would you like it? I was like, yeah. yeah and, give it over. <laughs> and, and again, that's, that's infectious, isn't it? So the way you said, yeah, back with me, the guy on the end of the phone was laughing with me. So he was like, what do you want it for? I said, I buy a property, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, uh, we can't lend you for 
business purposes. This is personal loans. And he said, I can't do it because uh, he said, if you said it was for a car or kitchen, I could have. He said, but I can't now purely because these calls are recorded. He said, but what I can do is call you back. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I went, I don't want to call you back. I hung, yeah. Yeah, I hung my phone up and literally in a second ring. Hello, bank here. Would you like a loan? Yes. How much do you like? I'd like 25K. Would you want it for a car? Money in the bank at the end of that day. That property, I, I, in that week, I had another offer accepted, but learned the BRR strategy on that one. Uh, so, but I, again, this was local. So I had a little bit of savings to top this up and I end up, putting that money in and refinancing that about 11K. And that's when I end up going up north because it's like, I've not got enough to do that again. I don't think the bank's going to continuously ring me up with these loans. But that said, that 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 loan has been paid for now. I refinanced that. The property I bought up north refinanced that. The other property I bought again, I refinanced that. And I think I've got about five properties off that one loan, which is now paid. And one of them is a HMO, although I'm not a fan of those. Right. And yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Well, so you keep on going again and going again, and that, that's what most people, how they yeah. get started. And tell me this, in terms of the affordability gap between, you know, where locally, as you were saying, and, and up north, like what's the difference in pricing that you're talking about that makes it so attractive? Yeah, so literally deals I've got on the plate at the moment. So I'm I'm buying a HMO, although I did criticise them a little bit earlier on. I'm still buying them. I still don't want loads. So I'm buying a property, a four-bedroom property for £77,000. If I bought a like-for-like -like property, just within, like, if I go 15 minutes that way, um, sort of in East London, if I go 15 minutes that way, I could go 50, I could go an hour each direction from where I am. In my area here, same sort of like-for-like -like property would be probably about half a million. Uh, if I tried to get a bit of a cheaper area, because I live in a, quite a nice area in Brentwood, uh, and went any direction within an hour, I think the best I could do that property would maybe be about 350. And then- Wow, huge, huge difference, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's the price per earnings ratio. So the difference in price per earnings ratio up there, this is what I'm excited about the North at the moment. Uh, and again, uh, uh, excited about the, the, the outlook for, because loads of people are jumping on saying to me, what about pending crash? Obviously, we're in a massive bubble at the moment. There could be a massive recorrection. I love Ray Dalio's stuff and studying what he's saying about the long-term debt cycles. But I, one of the things I'm... You don't never know. Nobody's got crystal ball. We can only do calculated uh, guesses. So again, don't take your voice off of this, anybody listening. But I'm looking at the way banks are lending incomparable the way they lended previously. At the moment, they want to know how long the money's been sitting in your account for, where it come from. Have you, some banks, even if they're a bit worried about you, want to know that you've got a bit of a buffer. They want to know the inside measurement of your leg, it seems. Yeah. They want to know everything. So they're lending a lot more responsibly at the moment. And also, they're not lending to people on furlough. So I feel most companies that wouldn't have made it through this correct like through this pandemic of without furlough would have probably been like kind of found out by now already or thereabouts mm. so i think maybe people that's on furlough come back that that could have a, a big wobble but in general i think they're lending quite responsibly and there's a lot of work and infrastructure going back into the north at the moment with the power of the north deal so that, yeah it seems quite exciting but just that price burnage ratio and affordability is is, is what makes a difference i think yeah, for sure. There's no question. And I mean, in terms of finding that location that you're now, that you call your gold mine, I mean, how did you go and find that? Is it just looking up the papers or, you know, using the internet or had, yeah. you, had you gone out visiting these places? I mean, you've clear, obviously you've traveled up there and actually been in the place, I presume, at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not completely remote, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, 
my area kind of picked me, but I, where I'm coaching people now, everybody kept on asking me the same questions. So what I've done is I sat down and reversed engineered it. So that guy, as I said, he moved down from the area. He met a girl that I knew really well. And uh, he didn't know he had, it was just, it was a chance and quite a luck meeting because he's got a fantastic network, really successful entrepreneur, but he'd moved down here and didn't know anybody. And we played a golf tournament together, uh, from uh, the, the mutual friends that I knew and we just get hit off. We was on the same four ball and we hit off and I kind of drift that forward. I picked his brains around the area, but he had loads of, uh, he, he's got loads of knowledge, network and everything in the air and supported me into there. So it kind of picked me. But then when I looked at it and trying to reverse engineered, what, what would I do now? Like knowing what I know, what, what is, what would be that marker? Because everybody asks me that question. And I think there's the power of your questions is the power of your results in anything, questions you ask yourself or other people. So I said, like, I've now reversed it back to, like, so location, what I mean by that is how far away is that location? So for me, and I say to people, score this. For me, that's a one because it's four hours away. It's not ideal. But then price-wise, at the time, I had I had about... I had about 15K price-wise. I couldn't afford a deposit locally, and I could there. So that scored a five. Yeah. Again, uh, network-wise, meaning do I know anybody there? That scored a five because I knew him, and we was playing golf two, three times a week. So I was getting to know him really, really well. So that scored a five, and he's got a good network in the area. Uh, capital growth was a one. Like in the Northeast at the time, there was zero capital growth. But false depreciation, as in motivated sellers, because there's no capital growth, there's a lot of motivated sellers. And this is what I say to people, you've got to kind of pick one. If you want a lot of capital growth, you're not going to get as many deals to force the appreciation up because who's going to sell in a hot market when they can sell it really quick? Motivated sellers come from not wanting to wait the average amount of time to sell it. So, so it's a balance. You weigh up either you can have capital growth or you can buy cheaply because you've got motivated sellers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can force the appreciation. And I always say to people, look, I could buy low because everybody says to me, what about capital growth in the South? At the moment, the last five years, all the capital growth has been in the North anyway. Uh, and, and London, I don't think there's any growth left in London myself personally. I, I feel there's steady growth, but not them heyday growth when the banks were lending irresponsible and when loads of overseas investment come in, they've been disincentivized from taxes. But you're and, not going to double your money in London now. Yeah. No, not anymore. No, it, it has steady growth and you already own properties there. That's great because it's such a large amount, but, but yeah, but, but uh, going back to the, I prefer false appreciation because people always ask me, I said, look, if I had a property for 300 K, like, like I said, that 350 K property, let's say for ease of math for me, 300 K went up 10% a year, which is quite ambitious, but let's say it does. And it has in the past, that's 90 K in three years time. That would take me about hundred K to buy that property. So that same hundred K I could go to the Northeast and I could buy five properties and force the appreciation by 20 grand and have hundred K in six months as opposed to waiting for three years and then lend, lend against that, that money again, as I said. So that's, 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 that's the biggest difference. And I say to people, depends what you want from me. If you want it as a professional business and you want single lets, it's night and day. There's no comparable between the two. You mm -hmm. know, you can't compare, compare a bit, but, but if when you want to side us all, then yeah. Just to clarify, when you say forced depreciation, do you mean buying cheap or refurbishing or what do you mean? Yeah, a bit of both, buying cheap and refurbishing. So just forcing mainly through refurbishing today because the banks today want to see you've done some work to it. They don't, they, you can't just buy a good deal today because somebody needed a quick sell. They'd say, well, it's only worth that, you know? So yeah, yeah. generally yeah. through refurbishment. Interesting. Um, and tell me this in terms of your own strategy is like buy to let flips, uh, B or or like what, where, where is your primary focus? So buy to let's uh, sort of BRR has been, but I'm not BRR as much because I've been, when, when I got to about 
when I got to about, I never got to the dizzy heights of you, Gavin, but when I got to about sort of 20 properties, I started deleveraging myself. So instead of like fully, like fully lending against all these properties, uh, I would buy one and then maybe put 30% down and force appreciation up a little bit, but not relend against it. Then relend against the next one, then buy one. So I started doing every other one. So it's really was stringing down your debt. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it's over. I think that's a wise, wise strategy because so many people, they get kind of hooked on the refinancing and refinancing and refinancing. And the market at some point is going to stop. Um, uh, and we all kind of like, you know, expect that that could happen at some point. I mean, in terms of your own, I, I just funny this week, my podcast was uh, risk mitigation and the strategies that are, people are bringing and stuff. And um, I mean, in terms of your own view, uh, you know, if there was a, a kind of a downturn, how would you protect yourself to, from that point of view? So it's, I'm investing for cash flow and rents, and I've got no mortgages that are tight that they can that they can recall the mortgages in. So really, was stipulate because of last recession, especially when I started lending in like in a business, I was like, I really don't want to get any lending that they can recall me on that. So I really stress test. I stress test. My, I know my portfolio as a whole, especially because the leverage I got on it, could probably go to about 11 percent before I broke even. So I always stress test at a higher percentage, like six and seven percent, to see where can this go if i did go underwater as well like can i handle a variable rate like will this property handle a variable rate this is why i also like the properties in the north because the yields are really really strong yeah. so I'm, I'm always looking at the cash flow element as opposed to the capital element because i see that as a bonus and if i can give myself a downside protection of as i said look if, if we get a recorrection in the market my theory around this is the northeast corrected it corrected in the last recession and not really grown since the last correction. Right. So my theory also around this, not saying I'm right with this, is this when when we went to a major economic downturn, this is where it showed you the prices was. There's been no major infrastructure. It's starting to come in the infrastructure now, but there's been no major infrastructure for jobs or anything like that. And the market's not grown. So in my mind now, it's like, okay, this is where it is at its bottom. So and the fact that banks only lend minimum 50k, I don't think this is why I look at all the areas. Not many of them go dip much under 50k because that's the starting lending the level of the lending. So uh so yeah. I look at it in that way as I feel it can't compress too much further because it didn't spring back out that much further. I feel areas that had stronger growth and areas that are really further away from the price per earnings ratio, like London's 18 times the average wage now, you know? So for me, yeah. that seems very, very vulnerable. Where in the Northeast, I think on average, it's about um, it's about 5.5 times multiplier of people's wages. So again, they're lending responsible and it's in line with the wages. So the any there's been hardly any growth apart from Last year, it started with this crazy market, but it's still in line with what people can afford as opposed to it just being forced by banks. So, yeah, if I can if I can stress test it at a higher interest rate and I know the cash flow and I know they can't recall the loans, I feel pretty comfortable-ish with that. Sounds, sounds like you've covered yourself nicely. All right. Yeah, I mean, here in Ireland, we have uh, the central bank actually has rules around the limits that banks can give out on. And it's like five times your earnings or something like that. So, you know, the likes of what you just said about London there. I mean, the banks just simply wouldn't lend money to anyone, you know, beyond, say, five or six, you know, times your income or whatever it is. Um, In fact, not even, you know, in, in, in many cases, they won't even go that high. 
Yeah, it's the same in the UK. And I, I say this all the time. I'm from London. I'm born there. I love London. I live on the outskirts of it still now. Love the city. I'm very, very sort of got a like a patriotic sort of feel for it. Really proud of that. So it's nothing against London whatsoever. But I say to people, how can this keep on growing? People that are buying properties are either unencumbered and they bought their property. Like if you just look at the stats, in 1996, the average property price was £79,000 in London and the average wages was £22,000. You fast forward to 2016, the average price was 488000 but the wages only jumped up to 36000 and, and the thing is, loads of people, especially the large majority of homes are owned by the baby boomers, so above the 65s. So they're unencumbered. I think about 40 or is it maybe 60 percent. Don't quote me on that. It might be the other way around. But a large majority of them are, are, are not got any mortgage on them. And even people of my generation that bought sort of 20, 30 years ago. They've got small mortgage on them. So when they move, it's not lying to their wages. It's lying to the equity that it's gained. And that equity got gained from the first round of irresponsible lending and the overseas investment that was piling in. But as I said, that's really, really, both of them have gone there, you know, like there still is some overseas investment. So I can't see if only lending you five times your your wage, how can it carry on growing? Yeah. And I ask loads of people this and they go, oh, because it's always as. And I'm like... Yeah, I know. And that's a kind of, yeah, that's, that's the, 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 the rock that the boat will sink on. Mm, <laughs> in, yeah, a big way. Yeah. in terms of, um, I mean, from the point of view of the, you know, London and stuff like that, I guess what, what's happened is that it's, it's the big funds and stuff that are kind of buying up and doing the renting and, and they can afford it, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that when you're, when you're borrowing money in different parts, that the, the rates that you actually can get are actually improved, obviously the closer to the central capital that you can get. So if you're borrowing, you know, a certain amount of money for central London, you'll get a very keen rate from your bank. Whereas if you're going up to the, you know, the Northeast or whatever, it, it may be not as obviously where your margin gets kind of slightly tightened or whatever of my the way I look at all this kind of stuff and I was thinking about in terms of you getting started and you mentioned the mindset and you mentioned that you read about Ray Dalio and, and all this kind of stuff I mean what would you say is the biggest thing that's holding people back in terms of like getting into the property market exactly yeah it is the mindset as i say and even the remote stuff everybody says to me what is the biggest challenge with remote property investing i say the mindset because everything you can do in person can be done virtually today of course there is some trade-offs along the way but it, yeah it is it's just that it's just that knowledge action gap and the thing is today we've got more and more knowledge than we've ever had we've got availability to knowledge with our smartphones instantaneously like speed of light we can have enough any answer to anything so it's not a knowledge thing you know and i always say to people this especially when people say should you invest yourself in coaching should you invest yourself in your personal development i say well listen are you at the point where you thought you'd be at this stage in your life financially in your health and, and, and your well-being in your relationships in your happiness because if the answer is no to any of those why not because the information's there on google you could just go on youtube and have some of you can have ray dalio tell you his views on it you can have richard branson tell you his views on it so the, the answers is there there's a big knowledge action gap and and that is mindset and the biggest thing i feel behind that mindset and that action gap is fear we all have a level of fear and we all got to manage that internal dialogue and i feel all the people I think people got a misconception of people that are successful thinking they don't get that internal dialogue. Uh, but the fact is they do get it, but they mitigate it and they, sh they quieten it very quicker than other people do. They don't let it get momentum. That course, that voice goes through and they just, they instantaneously just shut, shut that it off. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. move forward. 
Yeah, that's I, I think that's critically important. And I mean, in terms of your own, you, 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 I mean, like myself, I'm sure you analyze your own habits and behaviors and stuff like that. What would you say are the, you know, the habit or behavior that has best served you to date? Uh, it's hard to pick one on that because it's accumulation. And I think, and I think so many people always look for that pinpoint thing, like, and I, quite often it's an accumulation of things. Some people, things are heavier than others, but meditation has been absolutely ginormous, you know? So I had three burnouts, like major ones to the point, like people call them burnouts and I'm happy to say this now because they're in my past. Like I literally drove myself mad. I was sectioned under the Mental Health Act twice, like the proper section as well, where I was locked up and wasn't wow. even allowed out. And and the biggest difference between then and now, I handle like probably a hundred times more pressure today than I did then. And the pressure was a part of like just too much going on was a part of that. And probably one of the biggest shifts is is like the meditation, but also. I don't know, there's so many things, it's accumulation, so I really keep an eye on my sleep, I really keep an eye on my uh, on, on my nutrition, I keep an eye on my exercise. I'm not perfect on all of these all the time, but I'm really aware, and I guess that's probably the overarching one, that awareness. I'm aware of the things that work, and I'm aware when they drift out, and I'm aware, aware when sometimes they're drifting out, and I'm like, okay, it has to drift out in the moment, because life circumstances means I just need to to stay up that little bit longer and, and put that in but I'm aware knowing when to kind of then drag that back to that equilibrium or the other way around when I'm just probably doing a little bit too less and I need to drag that back up to that equilibrium I think that's it isn't it at the end of the day if you're reviewing it and you're just constantly assessing your behavior and you can kind of say to yourself you know what I'm out of alignment here but there are extenuating circumstances and I know that in three weeks the project's going to be finished and I'll be able to bring it back in line or whatever but it's when you're kind of consistently out of alignment with whatever it is whether it's nutrition or health or yeah that's that's pretty much what I kind of keep my my uh, my eye on as well um so one quickly thing sorry Gavin jumping on there but I call it figuring out happy we never can have this perfect road like that's a misconception that people have they think look they've got this linear path you're just happy all the way just things happen and the more successful you are the more things will happen as well you have more challenges and it is exactly that it's not fooling yourself and trying to justify like when things like some people go oh so i haven't got time to go to the gym and how can you if you justify it, it's never gonna you're never gonna get it back you know you just gotta go okay it's a three-week project as you just said it's coming to an end and i need to be disciplined to go boom get back to that point afterwards but figuring out happy to me is always assessing because what happened last week will be different when you take on a bigger project, when you have a new kid or, or when different things in your life as you get old and your exercise routine changes, you know, and it's constantly figuring that out and being aware yeah. to, to guide that back to that, that equilibrium. I get you. I get you. In terms of, um, you know, we will flip the switch now and in, in, in terms of the bad habits that you have or you've had or something like that, like, what would you say? Um, because I, I know when, um, in my case, I'm always probably taking on more than I should. And uh, I find I have like FOMO and <laughs> I'll just keep on kind of like saying, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll do that. I mean, have you reviewed your own behaviors? Like what would you say holds you back in terms of, or what have you had to work on really hard to try to prevent yeah, great question. Really like that. Uh, but yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, definitely saying yes to too many things, spinning too many plates. And I really try to drill this into people. Like, just because somebody's capable, doesn't they've only got the same amount of hours in a day. So just because you, you could be fully capable to do every single thing, but you can't squeeze them all in. Nice little rule I've learned, but I don't always stick to it. But I try to use 70, 20, 10, like 70% of your energy going on your main focus, 20 on the second, 10 on the third. Because obviously I've got a... And again, this is another one. I've analysed myself in a way. I've done some training with Roger Hamilton and he does Wealth Dynamics. And, and I looked, I'm a creator profile. So I'm heading the clouds 
like vision and that is to my advantage and to my disadvantage also ex exactly for that reason i do take too much on not detailed at finishing things i'm very much one of, i'm one of these people if you put a flat pack together i can miss out every other screw along the line it don't bother me one little bit i'm, I'm like that's done it's, it's together it, it holds up let's get on with it and we'll fix it later on if it breaks sort of thing uh just to save that time but yeah i think the exactly that spinning too many plates not not having that detail but the thing i work on to that is just trying to understand the dyna wealth dynamics of me and team members so when i hire people uh one of my biggest flaws was hiring i used to hire people that i just kind of liked and 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 that was it never gave them no process through trying to hire them so now I take everybody through a hiring process whether i know them or not if i know them it might be slightly lower than somebody i don't but i take them through a process one to test their to test their effort and their ability uh but to uh really like put them through a profile test to make sure what they're trying to do suits their profile what they're doing which so one do you use which which profile test do you use if I hire people, I use the RICs because we just get it for £16. I prefer I prefer the Wealth Dynamics one, but it's $100, you know? So yeah. if, you, if you've got six interviews, it's $600. It adds up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So... I prefer it. Look, the Rick's the 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 disc one tells us enough for what we for what we need to know. But I like them all. I really studied loads of them. But they're the two major ones that I'll use. I'll send out. Uh, Wealth Dynamics has got one called Genius U. This is free. So at the first stage of doing anything, if I'm going to joint venture anybody, I'm going to do anything with them. I send them this free version and say, do that so I can see what your profile is, and also read my values. Have you got any values? Send them over. If not, but if not, here's a little exercise to do it because again, it's just testing their effort. If they send me that back within minutes or even a day and they, they do this exercise it's, it's straight away testing like their their commitment initiative to, yeah. yeah initiative that's the word yeah yeah because i i use uh, myers briggs for some yeah. of them and i use colby for another one and um, the colby one is interesting um yeah, I was just looking. I've never used that. Somebody else advised me that a little while ago. I was looking at it. Uh, I've just not got around to proper deep diving in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of people sort of that I'm sort of a circle that I'm in um, are talking about it a lot. So it's interesting. I'm giving it some more thought. I um, wanted to get into just uh, in terms of, you know, remote property, you obviously rely on technology a lot. I mean, it, for everything, pretty much. And, uh, and, you know, technology is, is kind of transforming the property market in general. So what are the apps that you are considering to be absolutely like vital in terms of, you know, your, your day to day, every single day I'm on these? Yeah. So number one app I can easily, they're all again, there's accumulation, but there's one I definitely couldn't live without. And this is whether I was in an office or an investing locally or remotely, I advise everybody to use this task management software. So I use Basecamp as my main one. I use Trello for a few other things. I use uh, any do for my personal. I use a few of them just for compartmentalizing different things out in my life. But the main one for my business is Basecamp. Uh, and this is like my online like office. So I've got I've got team members in the Philippines, Colombia, Venezuela, in the Northeast and in the, in the Southeast. So this is the kind of glue that glues us together, but takes it out of our mind, stops us from having to remember everything. It stops us from, from missing tasks and it stops us from getting distracted. Like go, you go into your emails or WhatsApp, there's a million other messages. And before you know it, you're halfway down a rabbit hole for half hour going, oh, I come in here to look at what one of my team members said. And so, yeah. Basecamp or, or any any of them work as well. Asana, Trello, whichever one suits you. I don't think there's a better one over them. I just think you find the one that's stick to use you. But yeah, task task software management and the cloud again. So even if I was in an office locally, Google Drive is the one I use. I like Google. I think they're a powerful company. They, they, they're here to stay. Uh, 
and yeah, they've got resources behind them and all the free stuff that goes with it, like the sheets and all that stuff. It's just yeah. fantastic. So they're the two main ones. But yeah, we use tons. We use CRM systems like Zero, and we use uh, PayProp to collect the rents. So yeah, it's very sort of tech prop. That's a prop tech, yeah. Prop tech. <laughs> That's oh, yeah, that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and uh, well, you kind of you mentioned it there. So you're a remote sort of property investor, and you also have a remote virtual team basically so you've got all over the world where you what kind of software are you using to find those those uh you know assistants and and things is it upwork or fiverr or have you got a particular sort of go-to platform for that yeah it's a blend so uh depends what i want and what sort of role i want you know if so if i want somebody more creative it would be upwork if i want something just dirt cheap and just not don't have to worry for the reliability of it i will use fiverr generally you can find a bit of talent on there but i find that there is generally a little bit more quality on uh what's that bit of costume more on upwork uh i usually use agencies for fine i've got an agency in the philippines called uh oh uh oh, it's on the tip of my tongue What's their name? Uh, Freedom Geek. Uh, I use a couple. Freedom of Geek. Yeah, Freedom Geek. That's cool. Uh, she, she's UK based as well. The lady that runs it. So although I've recommended her to loads of people, in the last few times we've hired through her, it's been a little bit slow. So I've just tried one. It's called uh, Aviva. Is it Aviva? I can't remember the name of it. If anybody wants it, if you message me, I'll let you know. But it's in it's in Venezuela. So I've never tried Venezuela. I've always done I've always done uh, the Philippines. But uh, one of my assistants, who was UK based, I got her on Hupwork, funny enough. Uh, she's originally from Venezuela and she uses them. She, she went, why don't you give it a try? Because we, we were struggling getting a Filipino one. We was interviewing and interviewing and couldn't get a Filipino one. But if I'm brave and I've got a bit of time, I'll use onlinejobs.ph. But the thing is, you have to then sift through the whole loads of them applications. So generally, we'll try to use uh, a, a, like an agency to just get them people in front of me first and then take them through my process after that. Time management at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm looking at the time there, uh, Harvey. I was thinking like the best advice. What's the best advice that you've received to date in, um, in the property market, we'll say? The best advice, oh, in the property market. That's quite a tough one. Let me uh, ponder that in a second. Uh, best advice. I think what? We, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, while you're while you're thinking of that, you can also come up with your worst if you want. <laughs> My worst advice was only invest where you live. <laughs> that was the worst one, definitely. I could, I could do that easily. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think I think the best advice I've had is so many just dis- competition in Florida is to try and pinpoint it down to one. But I think it's my own advice, taking that gut gut, gut instinct to say, look, because I was really swimming against the tide. Everybody's saying I only invest locally. And, and as I said, the strategic advantage for me was zero with knowing the area and, and also cost-wise. I just couldn't afford it. If you can't afford it locally and you can't get – and you've not got the experience to go into the bigger stuff, because it does work local, but you need bigger stuff. You can't do vanilla buy-to-let sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think – my own advice, I know that sounds a little bit vain, but yeah, just to break that and the advice of only staying locally was probably the worst, worst one I've had. And in terms of, I mean, I just wanted to go back to your, in terms of your, your social media profile, we were talking before we started recording about your TikTok and, and things like that. How important is the social media having a profile and all that in terms of what you do? Uh, absolutely critical. I say to people, look, if you, it, like, no matter how good you are at business, if you had 
building out a profile, online profile too, that you're going to accelerate that faster, no matter how good you are. You can grow a business without it, but it's very much a changing landscape. You obviously know Daniel Priestley in that, and he talks about that in his Entrepreneurial Revolution, where he said there's a wave of change. And I don't think, I think everybody is sleeping on this change that's coming. Like when we went from the industrial revolution, like from the agricultural to the industrial, we're going through a big shift as humanity. And this technology and this prop, prop tech and all tech is changing the way we're going to do everything and covid sped that sped that up but uh absolutely uh yeah it's really really critical to really understand and try to jump on that surfboard and, and ride this wave rather than get get washed out by that because yeah we are in a massively changing time yeah for sure well harvey thanks so much for coming on today if people want to reach out and uh, connect with you uh what's the best place to find you where is the best place to find you uh, on social media. So yeah, going back to that very, very important social media, I think it's probably the best thing you could work on in your business to drive it forward. But find me, Harvey Grow Properties, pretty much across all of them. That's my handle on, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, probably Instagram or Facebook Messenger is, is the quickest way to get through to me with all these different messenger platforms out there today. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes and uh, at least that way people can find you if they want to reach out. Harvey, it's been a pleasure. Harvey of Harvey Growth Properties. And uh, we'll, uh, I look forward to catching up with you in the near future. Thanks yeah, so much. Fantastic, Gavin. Really, really honored to be on here and I really admire what you do and keep doing what you're doing, mate. It's really, really inspirational. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my number one ask is for you to leave a review or indeed share the episode out with someone you think may benefit from it. In the show notes, you will find links to the various things discussed today. And if you have any questions or topics you would like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you can reach out to me on social media using the handle Gavin J. Gallagher. And this includes my YouTube channel. Lastly, you can stay up to date with the various things I am working on by adding your name to my email list, which you will find over at gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. All right, folks, that's all for now. See you again next week. Mm -hmm.